This is the Raising Athletes Podcast, Episode 18, with Jason Boer, 23-year veteran of the U.S. Navy SEALs. Hi. This is, I'm, bleh. <laughs> <laughs> Once you know it's for real, you're like, uh, <laughs> okay, Hi, I'm Kirsten Jones. And I'm Susie Walton. And this is our podcast, Hashtag Raising Athletes with Kirsten and Susie. Our passion is supporting parents and raising not only strong athletes, but extraordinary people. Join us each week as we tackle all topics youth sports, including everything from early specialization and overuse injuries, to helping our kids feel empowered and learn how to advocate for themselves, not only in the classroom and on the court, but at dinner tables and in their communities. We'll be talking to coaches, athletes, parents, and anyone else who will speak to us <laughs> about their experiences with youth sports and their paths to success. And even more importantly, their failures. Yes, we're going to get into the gritty details of what went wrong so that we can all learn from it, teach our kids and ourselves how to do better next time. Because in the words of Maya Angelou, when you know better, you do better. So welcome to Raising Athletes, because we love to win too. Let's do this. Jason Booher is a leader of the management consulting firm Northwest Harbor Solutions. NHS helps companies increase performance and execution by better aligning their people and teams to their mission. He has also served as an advisor from everyone in the local public sector to the most senior levels of U.S. Congress, professional sports, and Fortune 500 companies. Prior to starting NHS, Booher served 23 years as a U.S. Navy SEAL. He commanded hundreds of combat operations, led the last phase of the basic SEAL training called BUDS, and drove integration of cross-functional intelligence teams and women in the SEAL's global operations. He helped create the first ever capabilities for U.S. special operations and twice helped create new SEAL team organizations from the ground up. Booher also led teams in back-to-back national-level awards for the innovation of the defense industry. He has guest lectured on leadership at Harvard and MIT and spoke on thriving under adversity in numerous student events throughout the San Diego Hall of Championship leadership programs and in professional sports at Red Bull and High Performance, Red Bull High Performance and the LA Dodgers. We had a fascinating conversation where he talks about the mindset of being a SEAL and what we can learn as coaches, as parents, as athletes around how we can take adversity into our lives and use it for better. Hello and welcome today on Raising Athletes. We're excited to have Jason Booher, a former Navy SEAL, talk to us about the power of adversity. I'm so excited to hear what he has to say and how the tools that we can use to help our athletes and ourselves um, deal with adversity um, through sport, but also through life. But before we get our, our guest going here, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I'm Kirsten Jones, a peak performance coach. Uh, my passion is helping others align their value with their mission and their mindset to get what they want in life. As a former Division I volleyball athlete and a 14-year Nike executive, I've always loved understanding the power of what makes peak performance possible. As a mother of three and someone who is currently in the middle of supporting my oldest son's dream to play sports in college, Susie and I have created this podcast to help others who are also trying to raise not only strong athletes, but more importantly, good people. 
And unfortunately, my sidekick, Susie Walton, isn't here today, so I'm flying solo. Um, but we're so excited to have you here today, Jason. Thank you so much for making the time. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This is awesome. So 23 years, like, you know, I, I, I can't wait to unpack all of this, but maybe we can start with, you know, we have a lot of um, parents and athletes and even some coaches listening. I think there's going to be a lot of great nuggets that you have in here around what you did as a SEAL and how you helped teams perform at a very high level that coaches and leaders within teams can help help their uh, teammates um, basically up level and perform at, perform peak perform. Um, but maybe we could start with with your background and in sport and you know how did your childhood sports lead into do you feel led into you eventually becoming a seal yeah certainly um so ironically i i didn't play a lot of organized sports until i've got uh, pretty later in my my childhood really in the middle school um and dabbled in, a, in, in quite a few sports i played baseball in in uh, eighth grade uh, and then in high school, um, you know, ran track, actually, actually shot an Olympic style, uh, you know, competitive shooting team that our high school in Maine had my freshman year hmm. and then, and then, um, found wrestling, um, which really, uh, became my sport. Um, so what was it about wrestling that you think attracted you to it? Um, I think what I, you know, it's a tough sport to begin with. Um, you know, it, it really takes a lot of physical and, and, and uh, endurance and, and strength and, and uh, mental tenacity, that type of thing. I think, honestly, part of what I liked about it, too, was um, I didn't like some of the experience I had playing baseball where, you know, I hadn't grown up playing. I was I was naturally very good, very good hitter, very good runner. But even at, you know, you know that age, what was I was I? 13, 14 years old, I, did, I didn't like really some experience with the, the parents and the, you know, you, you, you get up and you did a triple or something and it was great. And you get up and strike out and you could hear the comments. And, and then in a locker room, a lot of times you'd hear people that, you know, were blaming other people for the, you know, the team's either success or failure. And, and wrestling didn't have that for me. Wrestling was very much, there weren't any excuses. Right. It was uh, a lot of self-accountability. You could go out there um, and you went out and did your job and you did your best. At the end of the day, there there was rarely a question of who won walking off a mat. Um, right. and, I, and I think that just naturally I, I was drawn to that. And now looking back on that, do you see the, the path that that may have put you on to like, what, how did, how is being a seal similar to that or dissimilar? Well, and I think we, we talked about this last week. Um, you know, wrestling is, is by far the, uh, you know, we, we, in the SEAL teams, we're always looking during our selection process of screenings of, you know, what sports, what life backgrounds are, are going to be great indicators for success in our training because we have a, a, a huge uh, failure rate. And wrestling by far, sports-wise, is, is the greatest indicator. And ironically, it's not a team sport. Um, but, I, but I think what it brings uh, is there's a level of self-discipline and self-accountability. Uh, and, um, it is a very tenacious sport mentally. And those things parlay directly into, you know, um, being able to succeed in, in the world of the SEAL teams where we are very different from vast majority of the rest of the military where we're not, we don't have a bunch of robots and it really isn't this command where, you know, you're having a bunch of the movie where the movies are standing their attention. You're going to give commands. You're going to go do it. What we have are, we've got incredibly high performing teams of individual problem solvers and thinkers. And, um, that's what we're trying to leverage. And I, and, and as I thought about this, you know, since the last conversation, I think that's probably 
one of the reasons that, you know, given just the, the physical nature of the sport, the mental nature of the sport, but also, you know, we in our world really, um, you know, that individual ability, you know, we're harnessing that. Yeah, it is. I find it so fascinating. I'd love to for you to even hear you talk about kind of the process. I mean, you touched on it a bit, what rising stars and you said a huge failure rate. Like what is the failure rate? What do you see? Because you led, right, for many, many years. Maybe talk a little bit about your history. You led for you were part of a SEAL team and then you you trained, right? You trained the new guys coming in. So you saw the whole spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I got to see both sides of it. Uh and um yeah, so for two and a half years I led but you know the basic SEAL training called BUDS that all the books and all the shows all are about. It's broken into three phases. The last phase is um, really where we get to take uh, those that have made it through the bulk of the, the, the selection, mostly the attrition's done. And then I, I really, I loved it because then you could actually start educating and teaching and giving some real SEAL skills to, you know, these young apprentices who are looking to, to go and, and have a career in our community. Um, but yeah, it's it's success rate. I mean, we it's fluctuated over the years, but I'll say the the average is anywhere anywhere from seventy five to eighty percent will fail our process. Um, and these are and, the guys that already came in pretty elite, right? These are pretty. So all of them exactly, <laughs> and especially and especially in the last ten years after we were directed to to grow the grow the force by a significant number twenty percent, which is tough. Um, the screening got even harder, much harder than when I when I joined. Um, so those that start our process, when we actually start that ticker, you know, there, there's a there's a massive attrition uh, rate there just to get to the front door, right? And so uh, it is a lengthy process. Um, it works. I, I think that we do a very good job, and not necessarily of we don't. I, I don't believe we build seals in that process. I think what we're doing is we're we're culling. Um, you know, from the very elite, you know, these athletes and these, and these wonderful folks that want to come serve, but we're finding those that ha- already have and possess that the, the metal and the mental toughness and that raw material that, that we can take. And then we can really invest the time and effort to make them great seals after. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so the ones that you say, we talked about this bit last time, but I would love to hear you tell the story about the ones that you kind of think are going to be the ones that are going to be the stars aren't necessarily, or the ones that are going to last the longest or be able to not ring the bell like how, how who who is that who is the grittiest um yeah it it, it it um and i wouldn't say that the ones that we don't think i think that all of us um once you're you know past your journeyman phase inside of the seal community you, and you go back and especially when you're um you're at the schoolhouse i think you learn very quickly that you stop predicting and trying to go that person's going to make it right okay. unfortunately unfortunately with pretty good with pretty good you know uh success rate there's always those few you can look at and go you're not you're you really don't have it we can tell that right but you're going to go through the process it's impossible to look at somebody and say you will make it um because it, it comes down to them and every one of them i'll say every single one of them are, if they make it in the front door, they've got the physical ability to make it through the program. It's whether or not mentally they want it. Um, and what we find is those that show up, um, they're sometimes the most elite athletes, you know, the elite triathletes, the, the ones that have always succeeded in every sport they've ever done. A lot of times those are the first ones when we bring real adversity through our, our process, um, which is very long 
those sometimes are the first ones to go and ring the bell and quit. Um, because what you find is they've never, they've never actually faced that before. They might be elite, but they never had to dig into a level that, that drives them, you know, um, like they'll have to, to, to survive in our community. So when you talk about length of process, how long are we talking days, weeks, months? Yeah. So the, um, so the, uh, there's a, there's a preconditioning course that's about four months long now, I believe. I mean, the, the course adjusts are, you know, periodically. And then when you start the actual SEAL training, you know, let's, let's say six months of basic training, uh, then you've got another probably four or five months of advanced training before you're actually, you earn that big, you know, gold pin that goes on your chest, the eagle says you're a SEAL. Then you're going to show up to a SEAL team and you're going to be in a SEAL team for anywhere from 18 months to two years um, training with an actual operational element before you ever go overseas. So for us, you know, for in comparison, you know, you'll have a a young Marine or young young soldier in the Army that, that, that come in, they go to boot camp, they go to initial school, and they can be serving overseas within, let's call it, six months. Yeah. Um, the minimum time a Navy SEAL is going to be on the battlefield as a new guy is probably three years. So wow. Three years, three years of training before we ever put them on the battlefield. And that first deployment, they really are there, you know, as an apprentice, there to learn. I mean, absolute value, value added member, but they are, you know, still very much at the the bottom of the, you know, totem pole as far as their their learning and experience of being a, you know, a SEAL. And then once they're deployed, you're active. You're in a military operation mode for you said six months. Yeah. So, so I think one of the ways reasons we've been fairly successful, uh, especially since nine eleven, is we've been able to maintain a fairly consistent cycle. So what we'll do is we'll bring a team together and a, and the team is, is used kind of universally in the SEAL team. SEAL teams are big, they're like 10,000 people with oh. 2,000, 2,400 SEALs, right? Okay. And so, but the, those get broken. So that's the enterprise. But then those get broken down into a, like a tactical unit. Like you think of a team and that team is, you know, anywhere from 20 to, to 40 SEALs. Okay. So that team will come together. And they'll start a cycle. And so for 18, for two years, no one comes in or leaves. And so in 18 months of that, they're going to do nothing but just train. And they're going to train in every discipline that we could possibly have to do when they go overseas. And they're going to make sure they together as a team are perfectly aligned at every single thing they do. 40, all 40 guys. Right. Exactly. That's and a then lot. It is a lot. And then, and then a lot of those folks, you know, um, you know, I did, I did seven of those. So a lot of those folks have been, have done the same, you know, over and over, but, but there's innovation, right? There's changes. There's, you're always, you know, but you also want to make sure that you as a group are perfectly aligned. And then 18 months later, you go overseas for six months and you go and it's your time to be overseas on call doing the job. Then you, then you basically come back and you start the cycle all over again. So, you know, we have our organizational structure set up that allows us to maintain this, the systematic approach. And I think that's what's allowed us to continue to feel very capable, but also very aligned, very true teams when they go overseas. I mean, the level of unity inside of special operations weight work, it's pretty unique. I've obviously never done anything at this level, but having worked in corporate America, working at Nike, one of the things I ran a course where we brought in the most senior executives with the with the rookies and so that they could teach each other. And I would assume that's kind of why you have this, the same buildup, right? Is that you can 
doesn't just because you're new doesn't mean you don't have value to add, and just because you're the oldest doesn't mean you don't have anything to learn, right? Right, and the, and there is there's learning that goes on both ways, and um, yeah. you know you're, the the young guys will learn by osmosis, but 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 in, in, but they're also encouraged, I mean, very much so. I mean, we um, the the game plans, the best game plans are are those that the leader basically says, hey, here's the mission. This is what this is what we need to go do. And then he, and he, he tosses it to the team and says, Hey, come back with the plans. And, and, um, you know, you, you'll see those, uh, you know, the younger guys, they do, they're very innovative, very capable. And uh, once they understand the mechanics of the, the job, incredible input, you know, in uh, a fairly young age. So I love that. And let's talk about, so we're thinking about if you're a coach listening or even a leader on within a, a high school team or a college team, how does this help me? So, I love when you talk about, um, you said people always ask you, you know, like what's, what's the secret sauce to SEALs? What, how do you respond to that? What is, what is the secret sauce to getting 20 to 40 guys in sync at all times for six months? Because that's essentially what any sports team is trying to do too, right? Yeah. And, and, and then the challenge of, you know, how do you, how do you kind of maintain that? Yeah. Upper level performance over time, right? So I, I, I think that um, there's a couple. First of all, again, a very team centric environment, still teams, right? So when I do think that I these days I default to a team mentality, and I think one of the greatest the secret sauce, if you want to call it, of the SEAL teams is it's not about any one group or person, never, mm-hmm. right? And and I'll challenge even right now any of my former folks out there that are that are about I be mine and I did this and I did that. I mean, that's that's what makes the SEAL teams great is it's always about the team and it's always about the mission objective, right? That's that's first and foremost mm-hmm. that trumps everything. The second is simple as the fact that it's hard work. I mean, there is no easy button mm-hmm. to play at the elite level and to play there consistently over time, right? So for us. We're constantly looking to innovate. We're constantly looking, you know, to, to be learning, and we're constantly training, right? And it really, is this um, as simple as we're constantly asking yourself, how can we be a little bit better tomorrow than we are today? And that doesn't mean that we don't celebrate our successes and celebrate where we are, but it's just a, building a culture to where we're constantly going to be learning to find those incremental increases in performance that are that are our opportunities, as minute as they are, to keep us playing up in that upper margin. That makes sense. So I would, because you have these 18 months to build trust, I would assume that's because right in order to be able to be honest, to be able to be totally upfront with each other and get to the next level, you've got to have a a very high level of trust, right? Yeah. And it's turned, right? Yeah. And you can't just say you're going to have it. I mean, you have to, you have to earn it amongst each other. Right. And one of the things I know you do, which I would love to hear you talk about, I think this is a great tool for, again, teams after a game is your after action room teardown you called it or what, what was your name yeah, for? yeah we we call it a hot wash hot wash <laughs> yeah we call it a hot wash <laughs> tell me about the hot wash tell us about the hot wash <laughs> yeah so I, I think that's very much part of you know um <clears throat> it's very much part of how we do business right so if you look at really a, what a full operational cycle would be you know you've got training and preparing planning you execute and then we come back and then the first thing we do, even before, you know, but we come off a mission, whether it's training or real, I mean, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to step into a room and we're going to go, okay, hold on, let's review what just happened. What went right? What went wrong? Right. 
what did we learn? What can we do better? And to be and clear, all- this is like you literally, you you still have all your gear on. You're like literally still, you literally oh, yeah, walk off. Exactly. You literally, you're literally, you get off the helicopter, you get, you get out of the vehicles, you, you're on a training, you, you just, you just train for 12 hours straight. And you, yeah, you're going to, you're going to walk in a room and guys are going to be standing around with their equipment on body armor, weapons, everything. Um, and, and you are, you're going to tear down the operation and say, Hey, what happened here? Good, bad, ugly. Who leads, and, Who leads um, that conversation? So generally, um, in a sports, it's called a football analogy. It would be the quarterback. Okay. Right. So it isn't even a coach generally, and it isn't the owner. Like, so my number two for years, his name was Daniel Gerhardt, phenomenal guy. He was a, a legend seal on the, on the West coast. He was a linebacker, Fresno state. He used, hmm. The analogy would be that the, the, the officer leader in a, in a tactical unit was really the owner. The, the senior, you know, uh, enlisted blue collar senior, you know, uh, supervisor would be really the coach. And then you had the first line mid-level leadership as the quarterback, really quarterbacking most of what goes on. So our leadership really is embedded. And mm-hmm. so it's that quarterback level that really kind of drives it, not the senior guys. Right. Um, and a lot of times what, what happens if it's done really effectively is, and if they're really what I would call humbly confident, it starts off with, Hey, you know, tonight, blah, blah, blah. This is what happened. This, you know, let's review the mission. And Hey, this is, you know, I did this tonight and I'm actually, I messed this up tonight. Hmm. Yeah. I, I could have done this better. Oh, hey, I, I, I saw this. I think we could all learn from this. And then literally a lot of times you'll even go around on the room, you know, Hey Jim, what do you got? Hey Sue, what do you got? Hurston, hmm. what, what do you got? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, and to be honest, even, Depending on each individual team, some of these some of these are really good at it. Some teams are. Some of them are not as good at it, um, like any like any other you know, team you're going to find. But the ones that are really good at it and really get into the details, you'll find even the young apprentice seals sometimes have a hard time initially with that level of critique, and, and they just initially see it as criticism until they really learn that no, we're not we're not really trying to you know critique everything we're going to celebrate what, what worked well as well make sure everyone can benefit from it but we're also going to make it part of our culture and our norm because that's going to open up transparency that's going to get us being exposed to one another that's really going to build a lot of this trust right because right? we know that at the end of the day what we're really trying to do is really just trying to get better as a team and have you seen this work at i know you speak at you know some pro professional teams and stuff have you seen teams adopt this at a very like a professional level yeah, I think that I think you have to have the uh, the sport where um, I think those sports where there's a lot of interdependence amongst the, the players themselves that's yes. required by the sport. I think that this is really, really applicable. I think those where you have maybe more independent performers that that um, that play, you know, together during the sport itself, it's it's tougher. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's absolutely applicable, and, and, and where I've seen it even more relevant is in the corporate world, correctly. Right. You know, it, it's funny how quickly they are and uh, willing to adopt it, and then, uh, and then you know, yes. I, so I, um, fortunate enough to uh, have you know, worked a little bit with Red Bull High Performance with the LA Dodgers. Frankly, those that are the most uh, eager to learn about this are some of the high schools, you know, Lacosta Canyon and some of the other places that. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I would love to see a little more be implemented into because I what happens in my you know experience as a player but also now you particularly after a loss right if you lose everybody's upset 
you walk into the locker room, the coach says three words and everybody disperses and everybody right. goes home with their version of the truth. And then what happens? We all sit in our heads and, you know, we all, whatever, blame or, you know, take our own blame, but we, we don't have an opportunity to express and to grow and learn from each other. But And support, and support one another. Right, right. And I love that right. vulnerability, right? If the leader st- starts off with, the team leader starts off with, hey, here's what I didn't do well. I'm taking, I'm raising my hand here. Um, you know, where else, where else can we get better? What are we going to work on on Monday on practice? Because this is not going to work for us the rest of the season. We don't stand for this, right? Yeah, and there's a couple of, you know, there's a couple of dialogues in there. One is I think that, um, especially at the younger, we go back to the athletes, right? Younger athletes, raising athletes. I think that it's lost sometimes that through those losses and failures, we're going to learn so much more than go we're going to win, right? Yeah. I mean, that's such a, it's such a critical uh, opportunity, right? And you want to capture those every time you have, because there's going to be times in life when now you really can't afford to lose. Now you really have to, it becomes at some point, depending on what you do in your career, it becomes no fail, I would call it. But certainly when in your year in your youth, that's the time to be out there and to be pushing it and, and to fall on your face and to fail also up because you're going to learn, right? And um, the, other, the other point to the a hot wash type um, where I've seen it tough, one is trying to institute it a mid-season. Right, mm-hmm. because it's it's a dramatic change for in, in the way that most teams would ever operate. Yeah, and most teams it's, it, they seem to come together when they talk about or when I'm talking to coaches and they say, "Well, you know, team meeting. We're going to have a team meeting." Generally, when they talk about the need or or actually having a team meeting, it's because something's not going right. Right. So every time the team comes together and they sit down and they collaborate like that, like this, now they're institutionalized to think that it's it's all bad. Something's wrong. Right. right. So, so to make this effective, what you have to do is you have to take this way of doing business and you have to institutionalize it and just make it the norm. And that takes the mystique away. That takes away that, that negativity. And all of a sudden you, you, you know, once you adopt it, you understand, no, this is an opportunity for growth. This isn't just all negative. So ideally you're implementing this either preseason or, you know, if you do an offsite before the season starts or first practice of the year, right? Right. Yeah, my, exactly. My, my, my suggestion and advice is, is always, hey, if you're going to do this for a team, it's easy. You need to day one, when you come together, this needs to be, and you can roll it out and talk about why you're doing it and how, and, and, um, but you need to, you need to be starting this at the beginning of your, of your cycle or your season. And so for, uh, for those who may not be able to do it at the beginning of the season, maybe you are mid-season right now, you see issues. Are, do you have any ideas around, suggestions around helping to hold, other, hold each other accountable? So maybe you are mid-season and you're trying to be a leader on the team and there's that one girl or guy that just doesn't want to get on board, that doesn't think they need to listen and kind of sabotages everybody else, even though everybody else is saying, hey, we're all in. This one person has decided they, they're going to get more out of sabotaging because you're probably based on fear, right? That they're not enough or they're not going to insecurity, right? But what can, what can players do to help that person come to, you know, come to realize so, that they're going to be better with them than against them? So my, I would say that it, it's not that you can't institute something like this at any one time it's it's a lot harder to do it right it's a, okay. it's, a it's a bigger change 
And so, you know, no one likes change, right? So that's just universal. I don't care if you're talking sports, you're talking companies or whatever. Um, but I think, how do you, how do you manage? I think that, you know, leadership has to do it, but first and foremost, it's by example. Mm. So if you're trying to, if you're trying to get the outliers to come in, I think the leaders within the team, right? First of all, have to lead by example. Um, and I think you have to make accountability the norm, however you're doing it. I think it, you know, and that starts with, for leaders about being self-accountable. They right. got to hold themselves accountable. Then, then you can start holding, you know, each other accountable. And I think that the power uh, inside of a locker room, I think, I think it's a, a powerful atmosphere. Um, generally pretty transparent, pretty raw, pretty blunt. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that, um, if accountability becomes the norm, I think one or two things will happen. Either those outliers will eventually, eventually join the fold or they'll be pushed farther, farther off to the side as outliers. And, and there's a chance for the aggregate, everyone else to, to basically benefit from, you know, that's great. Yeah, I agree. And, but it's hard. It's hard when you're in the middle of it, right? <laughs> it is. It's tough because, because you have two, you know, there's really two, the outlier is one or two things. Either the outlier is um, someone who's just resistant to, to participating. Um, and a lot of times that's probably insecurity or, or just not wanting to be open or, or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And then you have the variable of the outlier that's, that's a corrosive, you know, member of the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those are handled differently. You know, I, I think that they're, um, I think coaches really have to, I, th- I think the, the ones that are maybe just don't want to participate there, there's a little bit of art in coaching, right? That, you know, in leadership and it's trying to bring those folks into the fold and continue to try to include them. I think those are the corrosive, uh, members of the team. I, I think that, I think that leadership and the team has to get out in front of that as quickly as possible or, or the, the success of the team really is, uh, risked in the long run. Yeah, I agree. Well, this has gone by way too fast. So, but I want to, before I give you my last question, um, I love what you were touching on about raising athletes and facing adversity. And I know you're raising two of your own kids as well. And so what you've been through and now as you're raising your kids, what advice do you have to parents around and coaches or helping kids get exposure to adversity on a more regular basis? So I, I, I think for anybody to be able to, so I like to say, not, I don't like to talk about managing adversity. I think we want our kids to be able to thrive in adversity. That's mm-hmm. the goal, right? Because that's the real world. Um, to be able to manage those curveballs when they're tossed out and they're not ready for. And I think for them to be able to do that, uh, they have to experience adversity. So I, I think we just, and we talked about this last week. I think that we as parents maybe don't, we don't let our kids fail enough. And not just in sports, I think just in life. I think we're always there. I think we're always there to, to, to clean up all their messes and, and, and make sure they don't fall down. And I think we have to almost find those opportunities and deliberately go, you know, at this time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you, you know, fail at this. I'm going to let you see what that feels like. I'm going to let you experience that because you need to learn from it, you know, so, so you know how to handle it and to be able to, you know, be better in the future. Um, and that's what I think that in general, I, I think that we're just uh, – we don't do enough of right now as, as parents, I don't think. Totally agree. And, and I think the older they get, the higher the risk is that we see for them as well. So it's okay to let them fail this second grade science 
test or whatever for some people, but by the time they get to high school, well, if he fails that, then he's, exactly. he, well, he, he's a, not going to get into college. <laughs> you know, well, right? exactly. So it's, it's the same, t- it's the same response that we're talking about in the, 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 the hot wash type, um, you know, after action review and stealing something like that. If you're, the longer you wait to do that yeah. in, t- in your cycle, it's, it's such a disruptor. Like it's, it's, it's such pushback, well, you know, so same thing for kids in adversity, right? So it's much easier like, you know, Avery, second day, you know, second week of school, she's, you know, fourth grade, she's forgotten something. She runs up to me. I walk her down to the ECC, you know, school yeah. here, and uh, she's, I forgot this folder. I'm going to get a ticket. You don't want to get a ticket, right? Because tickets are bad. <laughs> and, you know, it's, well, do I go get it or do I, you know, it's like, no, sorry. You know what? It's going to be okay. You'll live. You might get a ticket. So you won't forget your folder next time. I mean, you'd rather do it there yes. than when they're 22 years old and living on your couch because you haven't you know, set them up for the real world and being able to, to, to succeed and, and get they've out never gotten it. a ticket. Yeah. <laughs> they never gotten a ticket. Right? <laughs> Amen. Absolutely. A hundred percent. That's a sage advice is exactly what we try. And it's hard because it happens almost every day you get tested and you're like, okay, how am I going to handle this? Am I going to rescue? And then you have to pick your battles. You can't, um, you know, you got to decide, are they going to learn the lesson today or not? Some days, you, you know, it's not the right day to learn the lesson, but when you can, you know, sit on your hands, um, you know, let them go through a little bit of pain so that they can, again, get some, actually my oldest got a flat tire a couple of weeks ago and he texts me and he's like, Ooh, flat tire. What should I do? And I wrote him back. Hmm. I wonder, change, what do you think? Change, what do you, change yeah. It. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? <laughs> and he's like, call USAA. I'm like, that's an option. And then nothing happened. And for like 20 minutes, I don't hear anything. And then I get a text and it says, I did it. He's like, to be said in a Morgan Freeman voice, CJ is becoming a man. <laughs> That's funny. And he was so That's proud awesome. of himself. He came in the house and he's like, I've changed it. He thought he would have like, you know, solve world peace. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's, that's a little piece of him figuring it out. Right. Sure. And- exactly. You know that that's what they need in order to get to yeah. the, next, the next place. So yeah, anyway, so- it's all those it's all those little things I think along the way. That's it isn't one big massive thing. I think it's just right. You have to be deliberate about finding those opportunities to let them, you know, have those little small learning opportunities throughout. Yes, exactly. All right. So wrapping up, we like to finish with this statement. Could you please finish this sentence? The best athletes I know do this. Uh, I think the best athletes are always looking for constant improvement. I think they're disciplined about their sport and trade. Um, I think they're coachable. And I think especially, go, you know, again, I come from the team-centric uh, you know, world. I, I think that at the end of the day, they know that their success is ultimately linked to the team success. Yes. Oh, I love that. Absolutely. All of that. All right, for athlete, athletes, coaches, and parents who are out there listening, would love to follow you, follow along, or see what you're up to, or where you might be speaking. Where can they find you? Okay, so I, I you know, so uh, I, I chuckled uh, when you <laughs> so when you sorry. asked me that before. <laughs> I, I uh, so I'm actually writing. I'm I'm writing a book finally. Oh. Right? I'm, I'm writing. I'm writing a business book, um, and and so the whole editorial world back in New York is going to beat me up because I, I, I'm not a social media guy, right? <laughs> so at some point, I might be out there, but uh, currently LinkedIn, uh, I utilize that frequently. So, you know, Jason Brewer, the only Navy SEAL on LinkedIn, you can get okay. me there, or uh, my company, my company's website, uh, nwharbor.com. If, if somebody actually wants to reach out, uh, they can always get in touch with me through, through uh, get me up there. The website. That's awesome. 
Yes. And I, I could talk to you all day. I just love understanding how this all works. We might have to have you back on. I know this is going to stir up a lot of conversations for coaches and, and players and athletes. I've already been talking to people that I know about it and telling your stories. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. We so appreciate it. No, thanks for inviting me. It was an honor. And parents, if you enjoyed this and you know another sports parent who's trying to help their support their teen at getting better and, and figuring this all out, please feel free to rate and share this podcast on iTunes. Our goal is to support parents in raising not only strong athletes, but extraordinary people. Let's do this.